0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Rock Harbor Church virtual service. We are glad you joined us. We are still not able to meet and gather together, so uh, we're going to do our church service and our sermon all online. So those who are at home all over the world and somewhere in the United States or Canada or South Africa or wherever you're tuning in at, even some people in Australia, we welcome you and we ask that uh, you grab your Bibles Uh, We're in the book of Exodus, and we've been looking at the life of Moses, and we're looking at the Exodus. So today we're going to be looking at Exodus 4, 18 through 26. And I've entitled this message, Getting Our House in Order. So just to set the tone here before we jump into the Scriptures, when you look at the parable of the talents in the New Testament, the Lord gives each believer... Uh, ministry opportunities according to their abilities and gifting. So there's always a call on the believer's life to do something specific for, for God in whatever season he puts them in. And God is obviously calling each one of us to do something for him, even during this time. And he will give us the assurance and the tools and enough evidence to convince us to step out like Moses did, and like what he did to assure Moses to go and be a a deliverer for Israel. He'll do the same for us. However, we have to decide to answer the call because it is an opportunity and you have the freedom to not answer that call or not. But the first thing we need to understand before we step out in faith and do what God is calling us to do in ministry is to get our house in order, to get our home life figured out, our personal issues figured out, and our family needs to be in spiritual order before we venture out and do things that God has called us to do. Because if we do not, they are the very things that will trip us up. And you're going to see this in this story, uh, this episode of Moses' life. Now Moses has all these other things that he has been working on for 40 years, his, his humility, his willingness to take orders, to follow God's direction, all those things are in place. But he has not done something in his private life and in his family life. And his house is not in order. And you're going to see God stop everything and make sure Moses' house is in order. And that, again, goes for us. Again, God's not asking for perfection from us when he calls us to do something. But he does want our house to be in order, our our family to be in order, our personal lives to be in order before we try to go do something for him. And what a lot of people will find out is they will answer the call, they'll step out, and because their house is not in order, they will fail miserably at it. They won't get anywhere. They will not be as effective in what he's calling them to do because they have this lingering thing that they have neglected in their home, in their family, or in their personal life. And so that's what we're going to learn about today with Moses. And I want you to uh, open your Bibles and you can just follow along with us. Again, Exodus chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 18. And it says this, So Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Now this is, again, after the burning bush, after God has called him to deliver Israel. And so now he's got the call. And and so now he goes back to Jethro. And basically what you're seeing in the scene is this is not Moses really asking permission because Moses is a grown man. Uh, but he's trying to obviously be courteous to Jethro and receive Jethro's blessing because Moses is going to leave now. He's going to take his daughter, uh, Jethro's daughter, and his, his grandkids, obviously. And he's been doing a job for Jethro all these years, 40 years, tending the flocks of Jethro. And he's going to then pick up and move to Egypt. And so he's got to re, you know, be courteous with Jethro and polite and... And, and have a lot of gratitude because, remember, Jethro took him in at his lowest point in life. Jethro let him marry his daughter and provided employment for Moses at his lowest point in life. And so Jethro made an investment in Moses. So as a courtesy, Moses owes this gracious act to Jethro. So it's not like he just can pick up after he talked to God and, and just went to Egypt. He's got to do this for Jethro. This is, again, about keeping your house in order. Moses just can't pick up and leave and disappear when Jethro has made all this investment into him. And so, what Moses is showing all of us, in order to have our house in order, Moses is showing sensitivity, gratitude, obviously providing politeness and grace to Jethro before he leaves and returns, obviously, to deliver through God the nation of Israel. But notice this. Moses doesn't go into the details with Jethro. He doesn't say, hey, the Lord appeared to me in a burning bush, told me this is going to happen. He gave me miracles to do through the rod, and I'm going to go and deliver Israel. He doesn't even say that. It doesn't, be, be, doesn't even become part of the conversation. You might ask, why? Why, why would he not tell, tell Jethro all of this? Because Jethro probably wouldn't believe it. See, Jethro had not had the experience that Moses had. He didn't experience that call. And obviously, you think about this, Moses saw the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ. He heard God's voice. And this would be extremely unbelievable to Jethro. Not that God doesn't exist, but that this happened to Moses and would cause Jethro probably to stumble and think that maybe Moses is kind of out of his mind. That so the timing wasn't right. It wasn't. It wasn't a good time to tell him all this. And even you see this principle with the Lord with the disciples. He said, "I have many things to tell you, but you're not ready." And it's a situation like that. And again, this is a major change of direction. And again, telling Joe through all of this would have caused more questions, and would have caused him to not really understand what was happening. And the same is true for you and I, okay? And I want you to take note of what Moses did. This is a good example. You're going to get a call from God in your life. And obviously, to have your house in order. We're going to talk about that. But when you're ready to do this call, be careful about how you approach your loved ones and friends and family in telling them about this call. Because if you tell them too much, you spring too much on them at the wrong time, it'll scare them. They're not, they're not going to be able to digest what you're saying to them. And it could be anything, you know, hey, I feel the Lord's calling me to do this, or I feel the Lord's calling me to do that. Be very careful how you approach people and what you say to people who have invested in you. It's very important that you come at the same tack that Moses had with Jethro. So we need to extend grace to people who may be in shock at what they're hearing from us or, or do not understand and maybe you don't need to tell them everything. Just like with Moses, he didn't tell them everything. You just you just need to gently tell them a few things and leave it at that. Later on, you can tell them. Later on, Jethro will know the whole story, by the way. He will know the whole story. But other things have to transpire before he hears the whole story. And so... Typically, when you feel the call of God on your life or whatever, and I'm not talking about going and being a missionary and going and being a pastor, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the things in your daily life that God calls you to do, and you firmly believe that God said, do this, do that. Most people, when they hear it, will not be on board. They will not be able to digest what the Lord's calling you to do. And so initially, you'll see a resistance from people if you tell them too much, You have to be very careful, especially your spouses or any family members around you. You know, you just can't walk in and say, hey, I had a shaft of light up here in my room and God's calling us to be missionaries in India. You just can't tell your spouse that Um, or whatever. I'm just using that as an example. You have to be gentle in how you approach that and how you disseminate that type of information to people. And this allows you to extend grace to them and be patient with them. And as, as you can see, the result of this, what does the scripture say how Jethro uh, responded? It says, and Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Or shalom is the, the Hebrew term. Basically, Jethro was saying, you have my blessing. And this is how, because of how Moses handled it. He handled it with class, respect, graciousness, and, and mercifulness to Jethro. He didn't handle it by being a bulldozer through Jethro and saying, hey, Lord's called me to do this. I need to go, and too bad. I don't care what your reactions are. I need to go do this. That's like a being a bulldozer. And those kinds of people, those kinds of Christians and believers bulldoze their way through things. Hey, God might have called them to do something, but then they bulldoze every, everybody in their way. And that doesn't, that doesn't go well for having your house in order. Um, These kinds of people who obviously are called to do certain things, they're exhibiting immaturity. They have no respect. They have no class. They don't appreciate all that the people around them have invested in them. They're ungrateful many times, and they sometimes have the emotional level of a 10-year-old. They might be an adult, but they have a 10-year-old emotion. But anyway, when we feel that call of God... We are not to act childish. We are not to bulldoze our way around people. We are to graciously tell them, as Moses did, Jethro, in the kindest way, the most polite way, the most respect- respectful way, before we go out and do something. And by the way, you better let time catch up to them, to them as well. So that's one thing we learn. And notice, you know, Jethro says, go in peace. It's a principle in the, the book of Proverbs that you'll see, and it's Proverbs sixteen seven, and it says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that even goes for in-laws at will, that if you do the right thing, if you quit your job, if you're going to move or something, you do it in a peaceful way that even your in-laws or your boss or your spouse are at peace or shalom with you when God calls you to do something. Okay, so let's go back to the text and learn more things about having our house in order. Verse 19 says this, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought, uh, sought your life are dead. And you can rest assured, this was a major relief for Moses. All these people wanted to kill him, by the way. But this is the Lord's assurance that, that he's going to protect Moses' life. So obviously there's a new Pharaoh, and in the ancient world, that meant a new governmental administration. and also in the ancient world, what that meant was, as in, as in some countries today, when you have a regime change, it meant that they would throw out criminal penalties that were enforced by the previous regime or government. It was kind of a, a kind of pardoning like kind of we see today in our, in, in our own governmental system. And it means also that other people who knew about M- Moses murdering the Egyptian and knew about the crime, who would take maybe charges up if they saw Moses, are dead as well. There's no one to bring this case up anymore. So what God is telling Moses, I'm going to remove your anxiety about this issue. This, you have to understand, is how much the Lord cares for Moses intimately, personally, and he doesn't want Moses to worry about this issue. And the same goes for us. He knows our thoughts. He's no, he knows the anxiety that's plaguing us. He knows our worry. And he asks us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us, according to, to Peter. You remember that verse? And so God is personally concerned with your anxiety, your stress, what you're worried about. And he wants to assure you, just like he did Moses, that everything will be okay as long as you trust him and follow him. He wants you to turn over your fears to him and trust him in those areas of fear. And he says, cast them to me. He will take it. So just literally say, Lord, I cast this fear, this anxiety to you. You take it. It's too much for me to handle. I'm going to give it to you and you take care of it for me. And what is the principle in scripture about this? That when you do cast your cares to the Lord, and you lay your anxiety at his feet, then you have this promise. This is Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. You know this verse very well, right? In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, what does this mean? Trust the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in what you're doing. Put him first. And what's the promise? He will direct your paths. What that means, actually in the Hebrew, is that he will clear the path of things that would cause you to stumble. But that's only promised to those who trust, don't lean on your own understanding, and put him first. Those are the three requirements in order for him to clear your path. Moses has done this. Hence, He's clearing the path for Moses and saying, all those who sought your life are now dead. He cleared the path. And he will do the same thing to you. But remember, you have to step out in faith. You have to trust them. You have to make him first. And then, and only then, will he clear your path. Not before, but then. Okay, let's turn back to the text. It says, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So now they're set, and here we go. Remember, Moses' shepherd staff, if you look in the text, has now been called the rod of God. God will use this rod to do his wonders and miracles in Egypt. And the staff obviously represents God's presence and power, and we talked a little bit more in previous messages. The rod of God will or would show that Pharaoh and his rule are not supreme, that God's rule is supreme. So the application, the takeaway from this about getting our house in order is that when we answer the call of God in whatever he's called you to do, the things that he has availed to us, like whatever is in your hand, he told, what's, what's in your hand, Moses? A rod, okay? Whatever you have available around you that you're going to use to answer the call of God, God now sanctifies, and they become not your tools, but his. Now follow me on this, about getting your house in order. If the Lord has called you to do something, and maybe it's through your employment, that employment is his employment. Your job is his job. Maybe you work from a computer. and Maybe you blog or something like that. That blog, that computer is now his. And a lot of what we do in ministry and in, in, in our everyday life, we use our body, right? Your body is now his. So you can't mistreat your body. You can't run, let your health run down because your body is needing to be healthy in order for him to use your body and doing whatever he's called you to do your phone now belongs to him your money belongs to him your time is his your home that you're using maybe to do a Bible study is now his your car is now his basically anything you use to answer the call of ministry is now become sanctified and is his so what's the point we are not to misuse his tools. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, later on, what you will see is Moses will misuse the rod of God. He will misuse the tool. And if you recall, he will strike the rock twice out of anger. And in effect, misusing God's rod, misusing the tool. And so... For you and I, whatever is in our hand that's used for the calling that we have, we cannot misuse it. It's the Lord's tool now. So whatever, if it's your computer that you use for ministry, you are not to misuse that computer and go on sites you're not supposed to go on. You are not to misuse that phone that can go connect to the internet and use sites that are not appropriate because that phone belongs to God. That internet search belongs to God. The car, everything, your money, it has to be used for God. It's his now. And that's what the takeaway about getting our house in order has to do with as well. So let's return back to the scriptures and we'll look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these or those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. Now, all those wonders refer to the three miracles that, that Moses was able to do. The rod of God turning into a serpent and then turning back into a rod. And then the other second miracle had to do, if you recall, with the turning of the hands, of Moses' hand, uh, into leprosy. Or it could be translated some type of skin disease that turned white. And then the third one is he could take water from the Nile And it would turn to blood. Those were the wonders he's referring to right now. And he goes, that's what I want you to start doing when you get back there. Do the wonders I called you to do. Anyway, this calling, though, you have to understand, is a difficult calling. Moses will have to personally confront Pharaoh, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and command him to release the Israelites or pay a very awful price. With God's judgment, obviously. But notice what it says in this following passage. But I will harden, and hardened in Hebrew is hazak, hazak, which means to strengthen or assisting his heart so that he will not let the people go. And so, folks, we got to unpack that a little bit. And so, we need to do a sidebar to understand this, because otherwise we can misinterpret this and interpret interpret this as a Calvinist and totally miss the Hebrew understanding and the context and the background through all of this. So, on the face of it, it seems to indicate that God was coercive or changed Pharaoh's heart to cause him to do something that he wouldn't have done otherwise, like committing evil. And so... We sit back and I think, well, does God actually change people's heart to do evil things? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, the Calvinists will say yes, okay? That God can overrule someone's heart and make them do something that, you know, against their free will. But that's not what the text is saying. If God would do such a thing and violate someone's free will to make their heart hard, that goes against a lot of the scriptures we already know. Obviously, this would be a contradiction of what you know about God's character, Um, Because God's character is intrinsically good and loving. That's his nature and character, right? Whatever God does comes through the filter of his love, okay? So this must mean something different than on face value in English. So arbitrarily, you know, God-heartening somebody doesn't make sense according to other scriptures, okay? It would seem contrary to his nature, and it is, So let's unpack this a little bit. Number one, let's first understand throughout all the Bible, the character and nature of God. And it's very easy. The Bible declares that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And he commands everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. That is a given truth in scripture. And we obviously can put that on Pharaoh. We know that God desires, because of that scripture, Pharaoh and the Egyptians to be saved, to believe in him, and he would rather save the Pharaoh and the Egyptians than destroy them with the ten plagues. We see this also in Ezekiel 18, this overarching principle, where God says in verse 3 of Ezekiel 18, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? It's a rhetorical question God is asking, and let me rephrase it. It's basically saying, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather have them repent. I don't want want them to perish. That's what Ezekiel is saying. That's what God is saying. So the character and nature of God speaks against him arbitrarily going in someone's heart and making them more evil. That's not what this text is saying. So that's the first thing we've got to understand. The second thing you have to understand is the context. Contextually, if you read the whole story of the plagues and the Red Sea parting, you'll get a greater understanding of what this term means. What we discover is that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by himself already to begin with. God didn't even convince him to be more evil. He already was this way because of his own heart. Pharaoh is the agent that hardened his own heart, okay? So let's define a few things, and we're going to get more specific about this. The definition of how someone in Scripture hardens their heart, you can see this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. And it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of, of uh, trial in the wilderness, talking about Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go into the land, right? They were believers, but they refused to do what God was calling, calling them to do because they hardened their heart and they wouldn't believe, right? Verse nine, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. So they had saw all that what God has done, had done. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Basically, they refuse to uh, obey him, right? Verse 11, So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. The promised land he was referring to. And so then the admonition comes to you and I. Beware, brethren. He's talking to believers. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The fact that that he says that means that believers can harden their heart by unbelief. Verse 13, but exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now let me unpack that a little bit so you can understand the hardening of heart. That can happen even not only with unbelievers, but believers as well. When we say that someone's heart is hard, it means that their heart fails to receive truth and act on that truth. Their heart is basically inoperative in that, at that stage, okay? Even a believer, right? So the sin of unbelief in the face of all evidence that God provides causes one to have a hard heart believer or unbeliever, okay? Just like with Kadesh Barnea, they would not go into land despite all the evidence God had given them, right? So as you witness Pharaoh in this story through the plagues, he simply won't listen to Moses. He won't learn from the evidence of the plagues that a supernatural power beyond him is doing this. So his heart continues to harden the more he refuses to accept the truth and the evidence God is providing him. He, in effect, is suppressing the truth, and thus Romans 1 is happening to him. He has been given over to a foolish heart, and it becomes darkened. And then, if you continue to read Romans 1, they, they're given over to a reprobate mind, and then they act it out. That's what Pharaoh is going to do. So the idea is that a person, the person, is the agent who hardens their own heart because of unbelief. And let me make this point. Hardening also doesn't mean eternal condemnation. A person can get in the state, a believer can get in the state, but if they will come back in belief, accept the evidence God provides, they actually can unharden their heart, and this is why God will say, I can turn your heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, but the person has to believe and believe the evidence, and then it can change. So it's not an eternal condemnation. When it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it doesn't mean he's going to hell. Now, did he end up there? Probably so, because I don't think he ever believed, right? We don't see any evidence of him believing. But just because someone's heart is hard doesn't mean eternal condemnation. They can change even on their deathbed. But anyway, again, this is more of the unpacking of understanding this. So Pharaoh refuses to believe what God is saying and evidencing, so he hardened his own heart. Um, And so you will see in the first five plagues with seven references that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay? But then we'll see afterwards, it'll say God hardened his heart. And I'm going to define that later on, so just hold on a bit. But here's the analogy to understand how someone hardens their heart. Just as you put a fence post and you put that in cement in the ground, you can move it for a while, but the longer it goes... The less you can move the fence post. And before long, it solidifies and hardens, and you can't move the fence post. That's what can happen to someone's heart. It gets cemented in, and you can't move it anymore. The way you uncement it, believe. Okay. So then let's move now to the meaning behind the concept of God's hardening. And this will make more sense to you, okay? Because it does say that in the text. In the very text we're reading, it says that God will harden his heart. And it will come later, later, after Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But what does this mean? Well, in this particular text, God is giving Moses a prediction of what God will eventually do to Pharaoh in the future. Not initially, but later. It isn't until the sixth plague that it is stated that God actually moves and hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this is verse 9 or sorry, chapter 9, verse 2. And as you will read, God is said to have hardened his heart furthermore after each plagues, uh, after 8, 9, and 10. Okay? But this is after Pharaoh has hardened his heart. Okay. But let's better, have a better understanding of what the Hebrew is saying when God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And it's important to note the Hebrew word hazak or chazak. In Hebrew, and that's translated in your Bible as hardened, but that's not a very good translation. Chazak carries a different meaning in Hebrew as it does in English. Chazak is usually translated as encourage, strengthen, repair, fortify, and assist. There are 55 examples outside of Exodus where the word chazak appears, and in all these other occurrences, chazak is translated, strengthen, encourage, repair, fortify. Okay? So, your translation of hardened is not a good translation. In the passage that we're dealing with today, in chapter 4, and the other passages we'll look at, based on the context and the character of God, Chazak describes assisting or encouraging someone with a course that they have already decided on. It means assisting someone to do what they already want to do. And the same is true of God with Pharaoh. God did not arbitrarily change Pharaoh's heart to make him uh, do a holocaust to the Hebrews in Egypt. God didn't cause that. Pharaoh already wanted to cause a holocaust in Egypt and wipe them all out. What God did was give Pharaoh the strength in his heart, to, in his will, to follow through with what he already desired to do. So as you know, Pharaoh was an evil man. He's a typology for the Antichrist, right? And he was becoming, though, in the midst of the plagues, as they got harder and harder and stronger and stronger, was becoming afraid of not only the Hebrews, but of Yahweh himself. Okay? So that's important to understand. And so after witnessing a lot of the miracles, Pharaoh, in his normal action, is becoming very afraid. And and basically would... Let the Hebrews go, because he's afraid. But the Lord gave Pharaoh strength of will necessary to keep on opposing him. If God did not assist Pharaoh's heart to strengthen it, to keep opposing God, to do with what, what Pharaoh really wanted to do, to follow through on his plan... Pharaoh would have caved in very early on and would have allowed the Hebrews to go earlier than than what the text says. So I know what you're getting ready to say. You might say, well, wasn't that the plan? Wouldn't that have been better if God just let Pharaoh be afraid maybe after the first, second, or third plague and let the Hebrews go at that point in time? Good question. But if you read the context... The context says there is a different, more priority of purpose than just getting the Hebrews out of Egypt. That's not the highest priority. Most people think it is. But the text, the context, will tell you something different. God wanted all ten plagues to happen. He wanted the Red Sea issue to happen for a certain reason. And it's not necessarily necessarily having to do with getting the Jews out of Egypt. Okay? What was it? The priority of the plan had to do with God Himself. But let's wrap this place this 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 section up because I'm gonna to go to the that's my next point, okay? So the first thing we just want to understand right here is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is actually. Uh, like Romans 1 where a person is given over to what they want to do and God is actually like greasing the skids and giving the strength to Pharaoh to follow through and do exactly what you want to do, okay? He's just given them strength and resolve to do this. And if God hadn't done this, Pharaoh's fear would have allowed him not to follow through in his heart's desire. So it's the idea that Pharaoh's heart was there But because he's becoming afraid, he wouldn't have followed through, if that makes sense. So God is just strengthening his heart just to make sure he follows through with what he wants to do. Gives him the ability, supernaturally, just keep going. Just keep going. And so it's not a violation of Pharaoh's will, by the way. God is above approach on this. He hasn't changed Pharaoh's heart to be more evil. He's actually strengthened it to follow through. Okay. What's then the point of this? What's the plan and the purpose of the exodus? Well, it's not primarily to get the Jews out of Egypt. It's part of that. It's part of the equation. But the main purpose, the priority of the plan is a major issue for God. Okay? It's a major witnessing issue for God. Okay? Now, when you get into the seventh plague and there's severe, severe hell, the Lord then makes it known to Pharaoh that he only remained alive because the Lord preserved him. The Lord could have killed him and wiped him out. He could have stricken Pharaoh dead. He could have killed all the people in Egypt with a pestilence and took them out, but he didn't. He could have, it could have completely destroyed them. But he tells Pharaoh he didn't. He actually preserved them. And this is part of the hardening sequence, okay? The strengthening sequence. The Lord had both the motive and power to do this, but he doesn't. He restrains his power, and he delays the application of his power all the way to the Red Sea, where he does destroy Pharaoh and his army. The main purpose of strengthening Pharaoh to keep resisting is so that The Lord can display his power so that the people of the world would know that Yahweh is the one true God. It's actually to reveal the identity of Yahweh. Not so much free the the Jews, which that's part of, but it's a witnessing aspect for Yahweh, which is still with us today. When you look at the situation that happened in Egypt and you compare, as the Lord wants everyone to compare, to these other false gods that are in the world that these people worship in that time and even today, and even to Pharaoh, who thought he was the incarnation of Hor- Horus. So, so when we read Exodus 9.16, it'll say it's for the purpose of demonstrating the power of Yahweh And so that the whole world will know him. It is really what it is, is an evangelistic, a worldwide evangelistic plan of God to go through all of this to show his power that he is the one true God. By the way, did it work? Of course it did. It worked. It works till today. Because when you think back in the Old Testament, the major movements of God, what do you think about? You think about the flood You think about Sodom and Gomorrah, and you think about the Exodus. The Exodus is a powerful witness not only to that world, but to our world as well. And you say, well, what does it mean to our world? Because when you think about the Exodus, it is a typology of the the tribulation period. Pharaoh is a a typology for the Antichrist. And if you look at some of the plagues in the book of Revelation that are going to hit the planet on a global scale, they are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. So what is God doing? He's using that historical event to say, I'm the only one true God, and he's projecting it into the future, not only in that time period, but into our time period, and saying, the Antichrist is not God. I am the one true God, and I will prove it through the plagues of the tribulation. I will show that Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ, are the one true God and that Antichrist is not, and that Pharaoh back in history is not, and neither are all, any other false gods as well. It's the same evangelistic message. And so that's what we have to understand, that God is working for the salvation of everybody, and he wants the story to get out. So he strengthens Pharaoh to just follow through so that he can do all ten plagues and part the Red Sea as a witness to the entire world. So God's plan with the Exodus was to make himself known throughout all the world. And it worked so well that when later on Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, heard what God had done, he affirmed to Moses, and this is in Exodus 18:11, Now I know that the Lord or Yahweh is greater than all the gods. And you've got to remember, it's very polyistic back then. And um, uh, many of the people in the ancient world believed in multiple gods. And really what these, these false gods were, were fallen angels or demons. And um, these people worshipped them. But, and they were also called Elohims, uh, gods, spirit creatures. And so what God, Yahweh was doing was setting himself above all that. Setting himself as the creator, the sustainer of life, and the redeemer. And so this was, a again, an evangelistic appeal, and it worked. So Jethro heard it in Midian. And let me give you another um, another thing that the Scriptures even point out, which is interesting. Do you remember the time when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant? This is about 500 years later, after the Exodus. Do you remember that? They stole the Ark, and then all of a sudden, remember, it caused them all kinds of plagues and stuff going on because they didn't have the right to have it. And so they get together and they they talk about it. what we're we gonna do, we've got to get rid of this this ark, and they remember, if you read the text, they remember what happened in Egypt. And they remembered and they said something to the effect of um paraphrasing, let's not be like Pharaoh who hardened his heart against the Lord. And so they decided to get rid of it and not go down the path because they commented not only what Pharaoh had done by hardening his heart and had opposed God, but they didn't want to make a choice that would bring more plagues on them that had already started. And the template they were using was what happened in Egypt. That's amazing. But that, my friends, is a powerful witness of 500 years later, the Philistines remembering it. And look, most people today even remember it. We're 3,500 years away from what happened in Exodus. And pretty much, you can ask the common person on the street, and they know the story of Exodus. They know, even though they might not believe, they know the story. And God was proving through that event, he is the one true God. Well, it's going to happen again. And uh, and like I said, Egypt is just a microcosm and a future prediction of what's going to happen in the tribulation. Egypt represents the world. And the world in the tribulation is going to be hit by the plagues of the tribulation. The Pharaoh in that scenario... Is the Antichrist okay the magicians around Pharaoh it's the false prophet but the Moses in that scenario is Jesus himself who comes back to deliver and deliver the Israelites but what is the point about the second coming yes it is it about delivering Israel is no doubt about it and saving them from the Antichrist but what is the big the bigger idea just like you saw in this text is that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's the same reason as in Exodus, as in the tribulation, after that after the second coming that everybody knows that Jesus is Yahweh and whether they like it or not they will bow a knee to him. It's the same point. It's a parallel. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future. Pretty neat to see that, but God orchestrates all of this, and it's the same point. Let's go back to the scriptures. Verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is considered Yahweh's firstborn son, and in the ancient world, this meant a lot. The firstborn son would be considered equivalent with the father. And in this respect, when you dealt with the son, you dealt with the father. It was like dealing with the father if you dealt with the son, okay? So they're co-equal in that sense. So this is why in the, in the Gospels, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's using that firstborn sense. And obviously, Jesus Christ is co-equal in nature with God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. So the firstborn son would receive a double uh, portion of the inheritance because he would have the responsibility of taking care of the parents, well, as you can see, Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. He is the, the heir of all things. He receives the double portion, but yet he shares his inheritance with us. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, the firstborn son would be given the bulk of responsibility as Israel is going to give the bulk of responsibility in what? What is the purpose of getting Israel out? And putting them in the promised land so that they can be a light to the Gentiles. That they can be a high priestly nation that serves as an intermediary between God and man. And not only, you know, so you saw that microcosm with the high priest and the priests of Israel. Well, the nation was to serve as a priestly nation to all the surrounding Gentile nations. A light to the Gentiles. That's their responsibility. That's what they were called to do. That's our personal responsibility, right? Alike to, to everybody, right? Jew and Gentile. And so the firstborn son belonged to God. So the parents would then have to pay God back a special redemption price. They'd have to buy him back from God. The redemption price that the Israelite family would do was their way of recognizing that their firstborn son was Yahweh's and not theirs. So the firstborn son would serve his father when he came of age and would receive a double inheritance. That's why we kind of do the tradition of baby dedications today. What are, we, what are the parents saying? These children do not belong to me. They are gods. He owns the children. We are just the stewards. And it's that kind of same thing that you're seeing with the nation of Israel. That's why Israel is called God's firstborn son. Okay, so when you see the phrase in this text, let my son go that he may serve me, Yahweh is in effect saying, I own Israel, you don't. They are my son who should be serving me and not you because I am their father. You have them serving you, but they should be serving me. You are not their master. I am their master. You are nothing more than a rebel to your creator. Okay? And I want you to notice that. And and, and because Israel is God's son, collectively, they have the task that God has given to them. Right? And we talked about that. Okay. What does that mean for you and I in making our house, make sure we're in order? By God saying this to Moses, that you need to confront him and say this specifically about Israel being my son, the application then comes from you and I is the same. In order to serve God, when he presents opportunities to us, you must understand that he is our father because we're called children of God and he is our master. We only serve him. We do not serve other people. Jesus said to himself about money even, he says, You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, and vice versa. The point is, when you're getting your house in order and serving God, you can't have other priorities that outrace God. God has to be a priority in our lives, and everything comes second to Him. Everything comes second to Him. And unfortunately, people try to serve God with having him as their master, and then having something else in their life as their master. And they try to do both. And you know what happens? When you call them out and say, you can't do both, guess what? They get angry at you. Because they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world. And they're trying to balance both. And so they think they can do this. They think they can have two masters. But what did Jesus say? You can't. Because you're going to love one and hate the other. And what it means is you will prioritize one over the other. And guess what the priority will typically be? It'll not be God. It'll be the other master. But they'll pretend to be, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm serving the master. No, they're not. And folks, you can take a step back and look at this happening right in front of you in your church and other believers. You know by just watching what they do in their behavior and how they conduct their life, what master they serve. And again, I'm not saying they're not believers. I'm just saying they serve another master. God's maybe second or third or fourth on their list, but maybe it's their beach home that's their master. Maybe it's their money. Maybe it's their job. And I'm not talking about people that have to work. I'm people that talk, I'm talking about people who choose to work instead of going to church. Or maybe it's club sports that's their master. Maybe it's they put that ahead. Maybe it's their children that they put ahead of, of the Lord. Well, you know, I can't get little Billy out of the tree. He's making us late. Um, so we couldn't come to church on time because we couldn't get little Billy out of the tree. Well, once you start seeing when people talk like that, and, well, the kids didn't feel like doing this, and the kids are not up for it, their master is their children. They've turned their children into idols. Their children dictate to them what they're going to do. Or their sports program dictates what they're going to do. So what I'm trying to say, folks, if you're going to serve God, you've got to have your house in order. Nothing can be a priority over God. And so Moses is getting this lesson that you're going to confront them about this. You're going to to say, in effect, what Israel's doing because we're removing Israel from this. And by the way, the same is true for us. We have been taken out of the world, been redeemed, been sanctified for God's purposes, not our own purposes, nor, nor for certain, Satan's purposes. Ephesians 2 captures this perfectly. And Paul says this, And you were made alive, you who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, or just like Pharaoh, right? Verse 4, but the God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, separated from God because of our sins, right, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what is that? What is what is he trying to say? We have been called to something else. We've been called to serve the Lord, just as Israel was called to serve the Lord, and we have to answer that call. But before we do that, we have to make sure we don't have any other masters. So let me give you a, my own testimony of how God put this in my life to make sure I, w- my, I got my house in order. Before I went to the ministry, I served an idol, I served the idol of athletics. I played baseball in college, and that became my master. That became my idol. And you know what God did to me? He had called me into ministry, and and I sensed it, and I knew it. But at the same time, I didn't want to let go of my plans for my life, what I wanted to do athletically for me. And the call on me was basically saying, I'm calling you to something different, the Lord was saying. And again, it's an impression on your heart, not anything audible. But what he was saying is, but you need your house in order, Brandon. And your house is not in order because you have another master that you serve. You serve yourself and you serve your athletics, baseball in effect. And I can't have you serving two masters. So you know what happened? Because I wouldn't freely let go of the master that I was serving, he took it away from me. I had an injury in my arm and ended up having Tommy John surgery, and I couldn't throw as hard as I used to. And there, my career went bye-bye. But why did he have to do that? Because I was serving another master, and he had called me to serve him, and as you can see now, that call meant to go into ministry and become a pastor. If I had not let that other master go, I would not be here in front of you talking to you. But he took that master away, just like he took us out of being a slave to Satan and brought us into being an, his child and him being our master and so don't be like me where I held on to that, that old master that I was a slave to something else other than God because he finally said I'm not, I'm not putting up with this I'm taking you away from this and he did and I can tell you this now 20 something years later It was the best thing He ever did for me. He truly is Savior, Creator, and Master. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.